I am sure that you don't care. But I feel like I have to tell you before this episode that I meditate. Not regularly, not as much as I probably should, especially now, but I do do it. And most of the time, it helps. And I'm glad that it does. Because if after being inundated with recommendations from self-help books and lifestyle journalism and medical papers and doctors and friends, it would have been a disappointment if it didn't. But also, it doesn't help everyone. And we don't talk about that. And we should. Think of other stuff that we attempt to help our brains balance themselves or to combat mental illness or even just to be more productive. Pharmaceuticals come with long lists of side effects, and the dosage is monitored carefully by doctors who prescribe them. Therapists often have advanced degrees, and there are strict rules around confidentiality and treatment protocols. Even yoga, which is probably the closest practice to meditation that's recommended, comes with a list of health questions you must answer before your first practice and a waiver that you sign that advises you on the risk of injury. But meditation doesn't come with any of that, even at retreats. I'm not saying that's wrong or that meditation must be regulated or anything like that. I'm just saying that as someone who has meditated for years, I had never heard anything at all about the dangers of meditation, nothing. And that's strange, so now, you're going to hear about them, too. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. David Cortava is a contributor at Harper's who did a deep dive on what we uh, know and don't know about meditation. Hello, David. Hi, Jordan. Good to be with you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And Maybe first, and I realize uh, this question could probably be a podcast or a book in itself, but can you give me a sense of how mainstream uh, the kind of meditation we're talking about today has become in Western culture and, you know, how we ended up here? Sure. Well, Buddhist meditation, which is what I focus on in the piece, began as a practice among renunciants living in monasteries, hermitages, and caves in the 5th century BC, and there are almost certainly uh, meditation practices in India that predate Buddhism. And there's a long history to how we got from that time to uh, where we're at now. The only thing that I really think is uh, especially interesting um, and a lot of people don't know about here is that uh, these Buddhist ascetics who took up meditation uh, in the 5th century BC, did not view it as a form of stress relief. These were monastics who had renounced all their worldly possessions, uh, abandoned their families, uh, gave up any hope of um, attaining any kind of social position in society, and uh, sought to transcend the world and its cycles of rebirth and to awaken in nirvana, which is uh, kind of an unfathomable state of equanimity beyond space and time, um, or at least to avoid being reincarnated as a, a mountain goat or a hungry spirit in the hell realm underground. And um, in the Pali Suttas, which are the earliest Buddhist texts, the Buddha discusses meditation almost exclusively with audiences of followers who were re ready to reject all earthly 
belongings. So it wasn't really aimed at a more happier life in which you are savoring the beauty of nature and you're a more present, thoughtful spouse. The way we tend to think of it now, it was really aimed at exiting the world. This eventually made it out of the monasteries and was taken up by the Buddhist laity and then eventually permeated uh, beyond that. Um, S.N. Goenka, who I write about in the article, was among the first uh, meditation instructors to teach uh, Vipassana to non-Buddhists. And he stripped the practice uh, and, and Buddhism of all its religious lineaments and rituals. And um, here we are today in 2021, where you have countless books, magazine articles, YouTube videos, apps, corporate wellness programs, all celebrating the benefits to our cognitive, emotional, and physical well-being. But it's, you know, it's been a long road from, from the Buddhist ascetic days to, to how we're using the practice now. What have we learned about it along that process? You know, I'm not now talking uh, going back centuries, but you know, I've read lots of things about the science behind meditation over the last number of years. What do we know about it? Well, I, I should say there is data supporting uh, some of the purported positive effects of meditation. I mean, that's the stuff I've read. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And we've heard a lot about that. Um, you know, I, I, I quote Ariana Huffington uh, in, from her 2014 self-help book, Thrive, where she says, the list of all the conditions that these practices impact for the better depression, anxiety, heart disease, memory, aging, creativity, sound like a label on, a, on snake oil from the 19th century, except this cure-all is real and there are no toxic side effects. So that's the kind of pop psych view of meditation and mindfulness that I'm trying to just push back against a little bit. We've had decades of research now, but a lot of that research uh, has not been you know, methodologically rigorous. It, a lot of the studies don't have adequate controls. They use small sample sizes. There's a kind of homogeneity of the study participants that makes it problematic to extrapolate to the general population. Of course, most of these studies do not actively monitor for adverse effects. So we know even less about the ways in which meditation might be harmful do we know anything about the ways in which it might be harmful? Do we have any studies looking at that? Yeah, so the research that does exist, and I should stay, say here, you know, we really are in the early days and the jury is still out on many of these questions, but the research that does exist is not very reassuring. There have been more than 50 published studies uh, that have documented meditation-induced mental health challenges, including mania, dissociation, psychosis. Um, I, I talk about some of those studies in the article. I note that in 2012, leading meditation researchers in the UK published a set of guidelines for meditation instructors, noting risks for participants, including depression, traumatic flashbacks, and increased suicidal ideation. I note a 2016 um, U.S. National Institutes of Health advisory saying that meditation could cause or worsen symptoms in people with certain psychiatric problems. Um, I've speak to experts like Jeff Lieberman, the former head of the American Psychiatric Association, who told me that he'd seen meditation-related uh, difficulties in his own practice. He says the clinical phenomenon is real. There's no question about it. I really made a point of reaching out to the most mainstream orthodox 
people I could find in psychiatry at uh, the most prestigious uh, institutions, Columbia, Harvard, Yale, um, and at Brown. And so there is a consensus that, or an emerging consensus that meditation can cause difficulties in some set of meditators. And there remains a good deal of debate as to who is vulnerable to potential destabilization and what kinds of practices under what conditions at what dosage levels might precipitate these challenges. And in just a second, I'm going to ask you about, you know, some of the stories that you've heard and some of the people doing that work. But first, you know, just as somebody who has um, read about meditation, who has meditated in the past uh, in in search of better mental health and, and has occasionally found it beneficial, um, I never heard a single thing about potential drawbacks. And again, you know, these were health professionals recommending this to me. It wasn't like I was going out on my own here and just trying stuff. There, This is a, a kind of major lacuna in the research on meditation. We've focused almost exclusively on the positive effects, uh, which, there, which there are. But the research that backs that up, um, a lot of it is problematic for various reasons. I mean, for one, our scientific findings are based on averages. So in any study, there will be individuals who benefit there will be individuals who don't see any benefit, and there will be some subset uh, who will be harmed. Uh, there's going to be a range of reactions. If you and I are participants in a study on meditation, uh, looking at whether it uh, diminishes anxiety, and 51% of 100 participants say that they've self-report that they've seen a diminishment in anxiety, uh, and and you had an anxiety attack, and my OCD symptoms were exacerbated. The headlines the next day are going to be about how meditation diminishes anxiety, even though some of the study participants did not benefit, or were even, or 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 the practice even precipitated some challenges for them. When you go looking for uh, research into the negative outcomes, or even just um, examples of what they can be. What do you find? Because you you spoke to a number of people, and maybe just start with uh, the story of the young woman named Megan, um, because uh, that one was obviously perhaps an extreme example, but also like pretty scary. Well, it's a long story, and I hope listeners will read the article in its entirety. But in short, Megan was a young woman in her 20s who did not have any prior experience with meditation, and she was in a period of um, flux in her life. She'd recently had a breakup. She was considering moving out to Utah to work on an organic farm. She was in that stage in her 20s when you're still trying to figure things out. And she'd been taking Zoloft, uh, the lowest therapeutic dose to manage mild anxiety. Um, and she was considering um, discontinuing that and so a lot of things were, were happening for her, and she was ready to kind of set aside some of these challenges in her life and, and, and mark this new beginning to a, a new chapter in her life. And she decided to go on a 10-day uh, silent retreat, a 10-day Vipassana Goenka retreat. And a little more than halfway through the retreat, she experienced this wave of positive emotion, an incredible bliss state, 
where she felt at one with the universe. She felt like she finally found her purpose. It was this very powerful, uh, cathartic experience that hours later morphed into, you know, the worst kind of panic she'd ever experienced, followed by psychosis and all sorts of delusional thoughts. And for the next 60 hours on the retreat, her condition worsened and her symptoms were just aggravated as the instructor uh, encouraged her to lean into what she was feeling. And she experienced a lot of suffering in the course of those more than 60 hours at the retreat before anyone thought to uh, get in touch with her emergency contact and get her some help. At the conclusion of the retreat, her parents picked her up, drove her straight to um, a psychiatric facility where she received help. And yet she she never quite fully recovered. And in the course of her two months at home, you know, she had good days, she had bad days, but she was left with this lingering feeling that she needed to escape from this life and find something better afterwards. And she took her own life. Now, I'm agnostic as to whether Megan had a psychiatric, a latent psychiatric condition that was triggered by the meditation or if meditation caused this. Uh, and, and that is kind of the intellectual tension in the piece where I interview different academics and scholars and, and, and they hash this out amongst themselves. But I think it's, it, it is a question that, that still troubles her family. Would Megan still be here? Would she be herself had she not gone on that retreat? As a journalist, my question for the, the community of meditation instructors who, who dispense instructions to, to so many people who are interested in meditation is, you know, could this have been handled better? And what sort of training should meditation instructors receive? What sort of comprehensive safety training should they, be, should they undergo before they're allowed to uh, give instructions? These are big questions, and this article is by no means the final word on any of them. But I just pose these questions for us all to contemplate. Well, yeah, and I'm not trying to um, take Megan's experience uh, as gospel either way, but is there anyone out there who has kind of looked into experiences like that systematically, and what did they find? Yes. Willoughby Britton, who is a clinical psychologist at Brown University, and her team have done some really interesting work on this. In 2017, they published their findings in the journal Plus One. Uh, and that report, which I encourage folks to read in its entirety if you're interested, uh, that report presents a taxonomy of meditation-related difficulties that include anxiety and panic, traumatic flashbacks, visual and auditory hallucinations, loss of conceptual meaning structures, non-referential fear, affective flattening, involuntary movements, and distressing changes in feelings of self. The, the participants in that study, some of them were new to meditation. Nearly half had at least 10,000 hours of practice. The majority of the sample were, had experienced moderate to severe impairment in their day-to-day -day functioning. Uh, about, I think, 10 had required inpatient hospitalization. Now, this is a, obviously not representative of the general population. They, they, they went out looking for people who had, who had experienced meditation-related difficulties so that they could make a kind of taxonomy of the problems that can arise. 
But there are other studies. There was one in 2019 that found that about a quarter of all regular meditators experienced uh, difficulties. There was a study last August, which I cite in the article, um, uh, published a systematic review of adverse events in meditation practices and meditation-based therapies. And there, 65% of the studies included in the review found adverse effects, the most common of which were anxiety, depression, and cognitive impairment. And I'll just quote briefly from that study. The authors concluded, we found that the occurrence of adverse effects during or after meditation is not uncommon and may occur in individuals with no previous history of mental health problems. Since reading your piece, I've been trying to think of another health or wellness practice or you know something that's supposedly beneficial in which the negative possible outcomes are never mentioned to folks who are starting up. I mean, I, I thought about yoga, but even then you're kind of grilled, at least in most places, about like pre-existing injuries or the ways that you can hurt yourself and you sign a waiver and that kind of stuff. And obviously, uh, drugs for mental health come with long lists of side effects. And uh, I'm, maybe you can help me because I'm trying to think of something. It feels very unique. You know, I'm I'm tempted to, uh, to, to venture a, a few guesses, but I, I'm already concerned enough about um, having uh, defensive meditators uh, upset and writing me emails, and I don't want to create a backlash in any other community, whether it's yoga or psychedelic drugs or anything. Fair enough. Have they been writing emails already? I've gotten a couple of prickly emails, uh, but that's to be expected. I think that's just a uh, aspect of scale when you have uh, a certain number of readers, there will be um, some who react positively and some who react negatively. So that's just an occupational hazard. Well, what would you say to um, maybe not necessarily the the people who are aggressively writing emails, but you know, I'm sure there's uh, a ton of people listening to this podcast who probably came into it pretty skeptical and and are feeling defensive because y- you don't want to feel like. Um, something that you think has really helped you might have been dangerous and you didn't know about it. At least that was my that was my initial gut feeling after reading your piece. Well, you know, I, I don't want to set up this this frame of contrarian journalist versus the meditators. I myself am a meditator. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, you you wouldn't know this from the article, but I I you know, I've been practicing for seven years and the reason I didn't mention this in the article is because I was telling Megan's story and that of her family, and I thought that stepping outside of that narrative would be a bit self-indulgent. I don't know now if that was a mistake or not, because I think the impression I left on people is that I'm a complete skeptic. I think if you're feeling defensive, I would just encourage you to read the article and pressure test some of your preconceptions about meditation against what I've written and against the existing literature, some of which I cite in the piece. You know, it's possible that people who benefit from meditation will gain nothing from reading this article or others like it, except in that they might become better allies to their fellow meditators who do have difficulties. You know, I like to think that on Megan's retreat, had the instructors there and her fellow meditators done a deep dive into the literature that I've been exploring, you know, they would have intervened sooner. They would have called her emergency contact 
sooner instead of having her there just unraveling over the course of 60 plus hours experiencing tremendous suffering. How might that story have played out? What would the ending here have been if someone had raised a flag earlier rather than pushed her into leaning into her distress? I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think we should. I think the researchers should be looking into it. And I, I think that uh, instructors should be aware that problems can arise. And I also think that people who have had difficulties need not feel ashamed when everyone else around them seems to be benefiting from the practice. If it's actually triggering anxiety in you, maybe step back from it. Maybe try a different practice. Maybe give it up altogether and take up something that's been more rigorously tested and, and backed by current science. Again, this article is not the final word on any of these questions, but I raise them for our collective discussion. And thank you for doing that uh, with us, David. Your piece is fascinating, as I mentioned. Lots of stuff in it that I didn't know and uh, would encourage everybody to read it in Harper's. Thanks again. Thank you, Jordan. David Cortava writing for Harper's Magazine. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can talk to us anytime by email, thebigstorypodcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. And find us in any podcast player, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or any smart speaker. Just ask them to play The Big Story podcast, and you'll find us there. Stephanie Phillips, Claire Broussard, and Ryan Clark produce The Big Story. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Thank you for listening. Take a moment and empty your mind. And we'll talk Monday.